There's nothing more thrilling than nailing an insurance company. And the truth shall set you free! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Great moments are born from great opportunity. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another edition of the On Justice podcast. Uh, I'm the Florida trial lawyer and USVI trial lawyer, John Fisher, along with my partner uh, and co-host, uh, Jordan David. Um, and we're excited for, a, for another episode today. We're actually, I'm sure some of you may have seen, we, we recently tried our case against our uh, half of our minor client against McDonald's for the burns that she sustained as a result of the uh, chicken nuggets that were served to her excessively hot in the Happy Meal box. So we're going to talk a little bit about that case. You know, some of the portrayal in the media is not, you know, like any case. They're they're short, limited information and not providing the whole picture. So we're going to talk a little bit about, about that case. Um, and really, this was Jordan's uh, case. He had handled that uh, really from inception and was fighting an uphill battle. And I remember the conversation we had when he was just like, you know what? Screw trying to get discovery. We're never getting discovery. They, they kept preventing us from getting everything. Let's just go to trial. Let's just get in front of a jury, put members of the community in a box, and let's just go to trial, and let's go win. You know, and I remember that moment, and here we are now, post-phase one, which, you know, we, this case was separated. Not intentionally. Our damages expert was unavailable for trial, so we just did the liability phase, meaning who's at fault uh, for what happened, and the next uh, trial will be what are the damages. So in this particular phase, we, we, as I'm sure many have heard, we got a successful verdict uh, that both the franchisee of Church Foods and uh, McDonald's were both found liable uh, for causing Olivia's uh, burn injuries that she sustained. So, uh, Jordan, um, you know, kind of a, you know, big case, big moment. And, you know, you, I know you remember that conversation we had about um, let's just go to trial, man, you know. I sure do. Yeah. yeah. I mean, trial is one thing, but you don't go to trial overnight. This is not a movie. So this was years in the making. Um, this incident happens, what, August 2019. Mm -hmm. And we filed the lawsuit on behalf of the family shortly thereafter. But for years, <clears throat> we were battling in court, um, doing pretrial things on discovery, basically trying to get access to the full Full scoop here about what could have possibly gone wrong. Has something like this gone wrong before? You know, if you look, every lawsuit begins with pleadings, a complaint, or in this case, an amended complaint, which sets forth the nature of the allegations. And it's easy to just talk like an elevator pitch and say a child got burned from a chicken McNugget and a Happy Meal, full stop. But the law requires more, especially if you're going to be suing McDonald's corporate and its franchisee. And so here we pled multiple, multiple theories, a failure to warn, negligence in the kitchen from the franchisee, negligent design of the Happy Meal box and the containers and things like that, breaches of warranty. So in Florida, products at the end of the day, right, a, a Happy Meal, a Chicken McNugget, this is a product. They come with the implied warranty that they will be capable of being used safely as intended. And so that and any number of things we pled. And we wanted discovery to try and see if we could ultimately support all of these theories um, and if so, how extensively, and if there are things like this that McDonald's was aware of had been happening in the past, whether or not that might've opened them up to punitive damages. And I have to say we had to say it was an uphill battle is, is an under understatement. Um, we were, you know, I respect the court's rulings, but ultimately we were denied access to a lot of things that I would say would be routine discovery in a case like this. 
and it got to the point where we couldn't really make headway in the courts. And so the court actually referred us to a special magistrate who was a retired um, judge and not just any judge. He was a retired chief judge of the uh, former chief judge of the third district court of appeal and intermediate appellate court in Florida. So we had to go there to try and get additional discovery that that got us a little bit more, but not all the way there. You know, I mean, ultimately, look, we never got access to market research in terms of what McDonald's had previously looked into before developing these products, marketing these products, designing the boxes, et cetera. We never got any of that. In terms of uh, prior prior instances, we really were thwarted um, all the way from, from the outset. And so it made it more challenging than perhaps it needed to be, but we were up for it. And John's right. After a few years of going going through that debacle, we just kind of internally made the decision. I said, look, we're not going to make any additional headway here. We're not going to progress in discovery. We need to use what we do have and put put this case together, package it in a way so that jurors will understand um, who's responsible. And I'm happy ultimately that the jurors in this case did. Yeah, I think it was, um, you know, obviously the, the work that we put in, you know, mattered, um, you know, but in terms of we had a jury and, and a lot of people, you know, they always want to second guess like what a jury does or what they should do or what should have been done. But you know, they, they don't really have the full picture, right? The jurors are there. They hear all the testimony. They hear the arguments of the lawyers. They see how it's presented and really come to what, what in this case was a was a fair and, and righteous decision uh, on behalf of this minor child who was injured. And and what I kind of want to – there's a couple of common – like the misconceptions that, that people need to know. The parents brought this lawsuit on behalf of their child. And the reason why that's done in, is because a child, you know, she was four years old at the time she was hurt, does not have the legal capacity as a minor to bring a lawsuit in their own name, right? So the parents, that's why it says as mother and next friend of OVC, OVC which was the minor, have to bring the lawsuit on behalf of them. The parents don't get any money, right? I, I want to make that abundantly clear because many people thinking this is an opportunity for the parents to, to make money and get money. That's not the case. They're not entitled to any of the recovery. In fact, if there's a resolution or if there's a jury verdict, the court will likely appoint a guardian ad litem to, to review the setup for a, like a lot of times they do like an annuity for the benefit of the child that she won't even get anything until she's 18. And then from there on, you know, thereafter. So that there's no upside for the parents correct. other than seeing justice done for their daughter. There's no ability for them to hit a home run financially, whether the jury in the next phase awards, you know, millions of dollars or nothing or somewhere in between, or if there were ever a settlement in this case, never was there going to be a scenario and never will there be a scenario where the two parents whose names appear in the lawsuit have been kind of run through the media in a way. There's never a scenario where they stand to gain at all. And all they've ever wanted, and I think you know, Miss Holmes in particular has been just the genuine article anytime she's asked, all they've ever wanted is for some accountability from yeah. the defendants and for for people to appreciate that she did nothing wrong, her daughter did nothing wrong, and now her daughter's left disfigured for life. You know, what is our justice system if it can't wrong if it can't right that kind of wrong? Yeah. You know, and ultimately the jury in this particular phase did that for this family. But to John's point, we see a lot of the commentary, um, you know, blaming the mom or suggesting that there's some ulterior motive here financially. It's impossible. Laws in most states that I'm aware of, Florida and Georgia in particular, but here we're talking about Florida, they have statutes, actual laws passed by the state legislature for this exact scenario where a minor is hurt, 
but has a financial interest in the in the outcome of litigation or a case, the law doesn't just say, hey, parent, you decide, here's a check. The judge has to oversee it. The judge has to approve it. It's almost always put in an investment vehicle, uh, guardian ad litem, something John mentioned earlier. That's like a separate lawyer appointed by the court, independent from the case, to make sure that any resolution or any um, money from a resolution or jury verdict is, is invested properly. So you know, I just kind of wanted to put that to, to bed, and I'm glad you brought that up, Justin. One of the things you may want to ask is like, well, look, how did you – how does this happen? How do we get into court in the first place? And what, what I've seen, and we had another uh, case involving a minor client uh, where they fell in a bowling alley, and what was kind of the same with that case as this case is that the business owners are very dismissive of the parents when they when they try to report what happened. You know, in the other case with the other minor, uh, the, the testimony from the mother in trial was that, like, when she reported that her child had fallen, was injured, you know, they, they almost laughed at her. Like, like it very dismissive and she felt like, you know, like a, a level of disrespect that ultimately led her down the path of, of filing a lawsuit. Same kind of thing happened here. The, the mother called in the franchisee store to tell them, hey, look, here's what happened. And they almost seemed like they didn't care. They didn't take down any information. They didn't ask for that. Yeah, yeah, got it, got it, burned, cool, whatever. And, you know, that... You know, a lot of times a business owner, it, like, it depends on, like, how they could could say, you know what, I'm very sorry what happened, you know, and they could have done something differently and probably prevented a lawsuit. And so, you know, because it's always like people want to be treated with respect and, and kind of acknowledge and listen well, to. Well, you don't want to be victimized twice. Right. Right. Her daughter's already been victimized, burned severely. The outcome, lo- the future outlook looks bleak at this point, right? You don't know. Uh, whether it's going to be permanent or not, unfortunately it is. You're calling the wrongdoer to say, hey, here's what happened. And by the way, like, how do we make this thing right? And to your point, when when you get dismissed like that as a parent, I mean, I'm a father myself. That just eats away at your core. Right. You know, you, what are you as a parent if not there to protect your child? And I think the parents in this case did exactly what any reasonable parent would and should do under like circumstances. And to the extent that they're getting blowback from the media, I think it speaks to their strengths. I think it speaks to the the true realities of what unconditional love means, which is that you're willing to do whatever it takes to make sure that your child has a fair shake in this world. And, th- and that's what they're doing. And they, again, you know, <clears throat> one thing for a lawyer to tell you their opinion, it's another thing for a lawyer to tell you facts. By the time this case went to trial, it was admitted, undisputed, stipulated, whatever synonym you want to use. McDonald's and its franchisee admitted this mother did nothing wrong. Okay. Dad wasn't in the car. He was at home. The mother did nothing wrong. The child did nothing wrong. And I think just practically speaking, what did they do different than millions, if not billions of other customers worldwide who pull up into McDonald's drive-thru? The answer is nothing. And so that's why they weren't at fault. There was never a disputed trial over that. And to the extent that some of the coverage is, uh, or excuse me, some of the commentary from the coverage is like, well, this, this, look, it happened seconds after they got a happy meal in the drive-thru. Um, I saw some commentary about like, oh, they must have left and, you know, it's all manufactured. None of that is true. It wasn't even disputed. The sole issue in this case was whether or not McDonald's corporate and a franchisee should be liable, given the fact that they admitted it was a McNugget that burned the child. The McNugget was in a Happy Meal. It happened, you know, moments after receiving the Happy Meal package. There was no question it caused deep partial thickness, second degree burns. You know, a lot of like the material issues in this case really weren't disputed. It just came down to should they be held liable? And right. ultimately, the jury was presented with a variety of theories, getting back to my original point to say, hey, you know, from day one, we pled multiple theories. 
the facts support each of them, but you never know what's going to resonate with the jury. And the jury decided, hey, primarily here, both defendants messed up by failing to warn because there was ample evidence to show that they knew better and should have done better by warning. And then secondarily, you know, the jury came back out during deliberations. One of the things they wanted to see was the the video from inside the restaurant that day we had uh, we got in production from Discovery some video cameras at different vantage points to show the fryers and how people were preparing things and handing it off at the drive-thru. They wanted to see that again. At the time the jury asked that question, we weren't exactly sure what they were looking for. But then the second question that they asked before the verdict was, can they hear back some of the impeached testimony of the, the franchisee's store manager? And you put those two things together with the benefit of hindsight of the jury verdict. I think what happened is the jury decided both defendants are liable for failure to warn, but the franchisee restaurant is also negligent because something went wrong in that kitchen. You know, one of the things that the um, the media coverage hasn't really highlighted, and I understand why, but it was, we brought in the Happy Meal container box still years later. And we also had photographs from the day in question. The bottom was saturated with oil. And, you know, McDonald's tried to downplay it by saying, well, we don't know exactly what caused that. Maybe it was the fries. Well, I think the jury saw through that and said something went wrong in that kitchen above and beyond what they already knew could have gone wrong. It should have been warning. And that's why they were negligent. Yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, some of the, the, what, what people don't realize is that the admissions that we got from McDonald's and Upchurch, right? Uh, the McDonald's recognized and said, well, look, we know we, we cook these nuggets to temperatures that burn people and not just kids, anybody. Like, that's what they've said. You know, it's ironic because some of the comments, they said they never get hot nuggets. But in this particular case, what we were able to do, well, I'll come back to our expert work. But so they admitted that, you know, they know it causes burns, right? They know that, that it goes out. They've admitted that if they had given some kind of warning, it would have reduced the risk to uh, uh, OVC, which is the minor child. You know, they admitted that or they claim that safety is the number one priority. They should be doing everything they can to protect their customers, including children. They admitted that putting a warning on the Happy Meal box was never even considered. They don't even have any policies and procedures for burn prevention. They don't have anything. Um, they do for their employees. Right. But not for customers. In the, in the, in the in cooking area, they do, but not for customers. And they also said, because what I thought was something that was potentially an issue was, look, look, maybe they're concerned if we put a warning on the box, it would have some negative connotations. And why that's important is because they admitted that, like, we know, they or they know that if they serve kids Happy Meals and they have a joyous experience, that they could be creating lifelong customers. So my thought was, well, maybe their concern is that if we put a warning on the box and there's something negative associated with a product designed for kids that are designed to create lifelong customers, that there may be some kind of negative association with that. They said no. They said we don't believe there would be any negative association with putting any type of the warning on the food product, which means there is no detrimental um, to their business, to their brand, to anything like that. And so... There's no downside. Right. Literally, there's no downside. They're already printing graphics and words intended for a child of all ages to, to be able to read and understand. So there's no downside. It's not like they're not already designing boxes. Right. It's not like they're, you know, one uniform color. They're changing all the time. So there was no downside. And I thought you did a really good job in cross-examination of the defendants of eliciting that. So it's it's a win-win either way. You either provide a warning and this kind of thing never happens or it greatly reduces the risk of it happening. Or um, the other win is, you, excuse me, by doing it, the win-win is it either doesn't happen or 
now you associate yourself with being a good corporate citizen by right. saying, hey, we also provide warnings of these things, which could happen. They might not, but they could happen. And it looks like you're taking care of the, the core customer base of a Happy Meal, which is a child. What? But again, the, the warnings here are not only, I think this is important. The warnings here were not like it must be in writing. There's no law that says warnings must be in writing. Right. John brought up a point in trial. When you go to certain restaurants, they put down a plate, careful, hot plate or, you know, hot bowl of soup, whatever. The point is there's verbal warnings too. And I think I think what took this case outside the realm of just like, you know, people's natural inclination with a first instinct to say, oh, why should, is we're dealing with children here. Parents are ordering this food for children. And especially at a drive-through, which is intended to get fast service, hand it back to children, give the parents a heads up. If you know, hey, this thing is hot enough to burn. This could be really hot. Give it a minute to cool, whatever. Nobody's requiring certain words be used, just something other than silence. Silence here was the problem. Yeah, and I th- I think that to to two parts to that is in your in Jordan in in your cross examination of the Upchurch uh, corporate representative. I mean, he he basically says, "Can I give a warning to all the customers that come in?" Sure, but then he said, "This is a line, and we use it in kind of closing." He said, "But what's the point?" Right? That he kind of arrogantly says, "But what's the point?" Meaning, like, and what we said, the point is, is to stop kids from getting burned. I mean, if which they agree would reduce the risk. So in the the frontline worker, we there was a testimony of, um, what was it, Sylvia Perez? Is it Sylvia Perez? Was that her name, Jordan? You had to help me in her name, the manager. The, um, the name escapes me at the moment. I believe it was Sylvia. Yeah. So she, she basically testifies, you know, interestingly, in deposition, she says, look, I don't serve nuggets over 165 degrees, 166 degrees. I don't see they're safe. Based on the experiments that we did, the nuggets that went out on the timetable were above that. Well, more than that, that she wouldn't let someone, right? She, She's the store manager, right. that she wouldn't let an employee actually even serve it. Right. And then she said that when it's 200 degrees, that the she would not even let her employees handle it with their hands. That's what she said in deposition. And the reason why, and she also said she gave warnings. And the reason why she said she gave warnings was because she did it as a mother. Then when Jordan put her on the stand, she flipped her testimony. She started saying, oh, like, I was nervous. I was confused. Like, kind of, it, it looked. It sounded it looked, rehearsed. Yeah. It, it looked you know? like it was because she, before Jordan even was impeaching her, he she was already giving that that kind of line about what it is. In trial now, she, she said, oh, well, I think two, up to 200 degrees is safe. So for for a customer, so not, oh, I, I would serve them above 165, despite what she just said. And, and Jordan made the good point, you know, in rebuttal closing is like, look, her boss is sitting right there. That's her boss. So now in a deposition, the boss isn't there. Now it's right in front of her boss, likely had, you know, conversations beforehand about why she said that needs to flip it and defend it. And, you know, that's a lot of pressure for somebody. And, you know, I hope, my, my honest hope is that she doesn't ultimately lose her job over something like this. I don't think she would, you know, but um, you never know. I mean, these corporations do something. So I think you have frontline workers that are not at the corporate level that provide warnings. She said it, she said it was the mother in her, you know. And, yeah. and one of the things we asked the jury is, where's the mother in McDonald's? Where's the mother in you know, up church foods. And I thought that was, you know, good testimony listed by Jordan. And I didn't, we didn't anticipate her to come and flip that, but she did, you know. Well, it was a win-win. We called her in our case in chief, despite the fact that she was the store manager for one of the defendants. And we did that because we knew what she had said to us under oath and deposition. And so she was either going to come in and say the same thing, which was truthful and favorable to our client's case, 
or she would change. And if she changed, then it's still a benefit to our clients because it shows the only thing that's changed is now we're in court. Right. And uh, from a credibility standpoint, I think jurors are intelligent enough to see that. So I thought that was a win-win for us. Mm-hmm. Um, talking about the temperatures a little bit here, because I think there's been some misreporting, but I, I don't find any of it to be intentional. I think it's just the nature of the game of telephone. But here's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with poultry, which requires under any regulation to at least be cooked to an internal temp for at least a second of 165 degrees Fahrenheit. Once it at least like wicks up there and gets that and satisfied, now all you have to do is keep it at 140 or hotter so that you don't reintroduce the the risk of pathogen. There was never really a scenario where McDonald's needed to have the nuggets internal temp at 200. Never really a need for the holding uh, oven, at least in our, our view of the evidence, the holding cabinet to be at a fixed temperature of 200 degrees Fahrenheit. But yet that was the evidence. So like the day in question, um, manager Silva, when she took some nuggets out of a fryer and she took that uh, internal temp, they were 200, all four of them that she tested pursuant to McDonald's policy. So that's actual evidence of the restaurant in question. Now McDonald's tried to say, oh, well, we didn't serve them right out of the fryer. We put them in the holding oven. Well, how hot is the holding oven set? That's set at 200 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's kind of where we started with the premise. It looks like they're preparing them hotter than necessary. It looks like they're holding them hotter than necessary, but we couldn't know for sure. Like, well, wait a minute, how hot were these? So what we did is we asked McDonald's, hey, you're a huge company. You've been cooking these things since the 70s. We're talking about internal temperature here. What about surface temperature? Guess what? McDonald's and its entire existence of serving these McNuggets had never once asked anyone to conduct a test to find out the surface temperature of these nuggets. So we hired an expert to do this. We got a huge box of McNuggets and McDonald's shipped us. Um, Our expert, Jeff Hyatt, he's a forensic engineer. He works for ATS Labs based in Marietta, Georgia, but they're not just big in the region, they're big nationally. And he basically recreated the kitchen, bought a fryer, bought a holding cabinet, you know, had the nuggets, recreated the whole thing with a team of engineers, recorded all of his data. And, you know, John, I'll let you talk about the data, but the, the, the short of it was they were likely handed to the mom 30 degrees approximately on average, hotter than they even needed to be to prevent foodborne illness. So this whole notion of we got to cook hot things hot, um, it really kind of felt like a wet deck of cards because they were still cooking it much hotter than they needed to. Yeah. Yeah, he basically, so he ran, you know, three sets of testing with various nuggets uh, using the same temperature of oil. You know, McDonald's system is they put it in for 360 degree oil for three and a half minutes, then they have to take it out. They hand tilt it or let the oil drip off and they put it in a tray and stick it in the 200 degree oven. What we found out from the testing is that when it comes out of the fryer, and they put it back in the 200-degree oven, the temperature is actually increasing, right? And Like like most things, commonsensically, when you put them in an oven, it tends to increase to the temperature of the oven. Right. And now that system, the way it was developed, what it really and, and what the testimony led to was for quality of the product, not for safety. It says, like, this gives us a, a crispier, better product. That's what they claimed. You know, and I, and I remember I asked in cross-examination, I was like, well, look, under your logic, you could serve a nugget to a child's Happy Meal at 300 degrees, and that would still be food safe, right? And because food safe deals with foodborne illnesses, not burn prevention. And he said, yeah, that, but I don't think that would be a very good pr- quality product. And, you know, that, so I think that a lot of what the jury, and obviously I don't want to ever guess at what the jury's, what they're thinking or what they're doing, but a lot of what they were looking at was, 
they're talking about quality of product with no nothing related to safety and and you know i think it's incumbent like like a lot of people are saying it's personal responsibility it's your fault your fault but i think that if you've got a multi-billion dollar company which based upon the revenue i mean chicken nuggets uh big macs and fries in 2021 was 60 percent of their revenue to the tune of of over 10 billion dollars i mean if you're making this kind of money uh you know you've got a responsibility to people that to, to do things appropriately, whether whether you think they were not, because okay, so everyone said we knew that coffee was hot, but now they have a warning because, but everybody knows coffee's hot, you know, like. I, well, there's I, a there's a few things on the coffee that really, to this day, that I just can't get over. But I understand why people who haven't lived with this case for years feel like um, it's a problem for them. But here's the deal. The intended consumer of coffee is almost always an adult, whereas with a Happy Meal, it's a child. That's distinction number one. Distinction number two is McDonald's defense in this case, one of them was, we intend McNuggets to be consumed, to be eaten, not pressed against a child's skin. Well, you also don't intend coffee to be poured in someone's lap or skin, but you still warn about that too. So the point here is, if you're already warning adults that you intend to drink coffee, but no could spill it, hey, caution hot, this could burn you then give children at least the same protection, if not, in my opinion, as a parent and a lawyer, more. But like, that's all we were asking for right. is like, treat consumers equally. Don't subordinate the needs to protect children when you know the same risks are there, when it's undisputed, you're cooking them hot enough to burn them. And I think that's what some people fail to appreciate. The issue here is not, should every food product that's warm or hot, and by the way, what are those terms? They're not defined right? 100 degrees can be hot. As John said in, in trial, you go outside, it's 100 degrees outside. That feels pretty hot. But you know, 100, 150, 200 degrees, there's a spectrum here. The issue is not do people want fried chicken to be warm enough to eat and have it to be tasty, crispy, whatever. That's not the issue. Restaurants can prepare food however they want if they think their customers are going to enjoy it. That's separate from whether or not it they deserve a warning to know, hey, it could also harm you if you don't give it a second to cool off or whatever it is. And that's ultimately what the majority of the jury verdict was. And that's why we say it's not a split verdict. Yeah, we gave the jury a variety of theories. Are nuggets inherently defective? Did something negligent go wrong in the kitchen? Should they have warned both defendants? You know, Did they breach an implied warranty of merchantability that the thing was safe to use as intended and foreseeable misuses? And all of these different theories, we gave them all these theories, all the evidence that just said, look, sort it out. But at the end of the day, two defendants walked into a courtroom, both denying they did anything wrong, both walked out of that courtroom being found liable that right. they had done something wrong. And so for me, that's not a split verdict. Um, to me, ultimately, what that is, is a jury deciding the evidence best fits these theories. And we don't need to, you know, uh, make a mountain out of a molehill here. We found them both liable and let's move on with our lives. Yeah. And I think that, you know, McDonald's had we found, um, you know, Ray found it was there's a. McDonald's is obviously an international brand, right? And so we call we refer them colloquially as uh, Mickey D's here. That's what we that's what we call them. In like the Asian community in the Philippines specifically, they're they're McDo. That's the name of. So we found a commercial where it was a family that went to a drive-through that ordered a Happy Meal with chicken nuggets and gave it without looking inside the box or anything in the commercial to the child in the car seat. And then pulled out the chicken nuggets and started eating them, and so because what we what basically we, the exact scenario here, correct? I mean, truthfully, 
And and the reason why, because Jordan said, is they're saying, well, it, they were arguing it's not foreseeable that a child could drop a nugget in their car seat because that's really, you know, you know, there's a little bit. We don't really know what happened or how the nuggets got and fell. We just know that while she was driving within seconds, you know, it it she started screaming in the back. Um, and, and the two minutes was the approximate time that she took from the time she left to the time she stopped. And we don't know if it was pressed the entire time. I know everyone, you know, it could have been 30 seconds. It could have been a minute. We don't know. You know, she could have been moving around. That's just the ultimate position where it was found. Um, and she was able to hit the rest off her legs that was causing her discomfort. So it's not just one nugget was hot. It was all of them. So when you're, they were arguing, basically, that's not foreseeable in our counter to that is like, look, these are your advertisements. These are what you're promoting and marketing to of, of a joyful experience in a Happy Meal. And I, McDonald's corporate representative admitted on the stand that like, look, when kids grab hot food, they'll drop it. You know, he tried to say they're going to put it back in the thing, but if they pick it up, it's too hot, they're going to drop it. You know, and, and, and so that was not in the realm of foreseeability. The answer was it is foreseeable. So if you're going to promote it the way it was done, promote it towards children, that's your end intended uh, end consumer, and you, and you know that this could potentially happen, you got you to gotta tell people. You got to warn about it. I mean, you know, or say yeah. you don't eat in the car at all. But obviously that's, that's not what they're promoting. So you kind of, you can't have it both ways. You can't say like, well, look, you as parents, you know, you should know, or, you know, a lot of people said parents should know it's hot. They're, they're going to burn themselves. They should check. But why? Why should they not trust that a company isn't going to put their kids at harm's risk with information they know or at least not say something. I mean, I, I don't think what I mean, easy bake ovens have warnings on them. Okay. And we can, we can all have our opinions about it, but I guess the point I'm trying to make is I think it's especially true when the intended consumer of a product is a child, right? We have to do what is reasonable under those circumstances for a child, right? It's, we all find ourselves sometimes looking through the lens of an adult and then saying what a child would and should have done, could have, should have known. You know, we forget what it's like to be a kid. There was expert testimony in this case from both uh, both sides. But Dr. You know, Dr. Josh Carson, our, our burn expert, double board certified burn surgeon, when he was asked questions about what factors into the severity of a burn, because it's not just temperature alone, okay? It's not. One of the other things that didn't get enough uh, highlight, I think, but is significant is what was the mechanism of it, right? A lot of the studies out there are dealing with liquid, like water. Well, water, when it touches your skin, starts to boil off very quickly. And, and when it does, the temperature cools very quickly versus things with oil or grease, which tend to actually hold the temperature and stay on the skin longer and actually make the burn more severe. And obviously here, Chicken McNugget fried in, in 360-degree oil, the box, the Happy Meal box in this case had, had excess oil on it. The inference here is that the burn was not just the sheer temperature of the nugget, the fact that it had oil on it, something McDonald's knew and should have known, and it's the same with its franchisee. But of course, another one of the factors in terms of the likely severity of a burn is age, believe it or not. We tend to see at the opposite end of the spectrum, similar outcomes. So on one end of the spectrum, you have a young child with very limited life experience. On the other end, you tend to have geriatric people with tons of life experience, but maybe they're losing their faculties and ability to react. And so what you end up finding is at both ends of the spectrum, the really old and the really young alike, they're more prone to severe burns, whereas in the middle of that spectrum, right, that that teenage to let's just call like, you know, late 50s, early 60s, these people are tend to be able to uh, guard themselves better, mitigate almost immediately or more promptly. And that's why a lot of the studies you see, yeah, 100 degree water 
can cause severe burns, but that's like if an adult uh, geriatric patient is submerged in it for too long and, and they can't move. Um, versus a child. So Dr. Carson talked about this with how do we all know an oven is hot? How do we know that? We all feel like we've intuited it or it's just so common out there and pervasive that it just comes coded in our DNA, but that's not true. Typically we know because yeah, mom and dad may have said something, but typically it's because we've tried it. We've touched it once and got it burned quick and you move your hand. And so that's, it's, it's conditional logic here. It's like the child almost needs to be burned first sometimes to learn that behavior to say, this is dangerous, this is hot, whatever. Why should a child ever have that information or, or fear or worry about a chicken McNugget? Odds are in the hundreds of times they've had them over a course of a life, nothing ever went wrong. And so there's no reason for them to not want to dig into the box, immediately grab it. And um, anyway, I guess the point I'm, I'm getting at here ultimately is temperature alone is not, this is not a temperature case. Temperature was relevant. Temperature right. certainly seems to be circulating out there in the media, but it's more than that. It's about a child. It's about a specific product intended for a child. It's about a product that's fried in oil. It's not just water. And it's a and it's the type of case where the age of the child, the location of it, uh, of where the McNugget made contact with their skin, all of these things factor into how severe the burn was. And if you're serving food to people in drive-thrus in South Florida in August, when they admitted this, you expect them to be in car seats if they're a child and probably in shorts. And so- right. You factor all these things together here. Remember, the legal standard is not certainty. The legal standard here is not you must have been able to prevent it with certainty. The legal standard is what's reasonable, what's reasonably foreseeable. And, and it's through that lens that the jury looked at the evidence and ultimately decided the greater weight was with us. And they did it correctly. Yeah, we did. We had a great jury. I, I mean, I, I think that, you know, once the because there were there were cameras in the courtroom, you know, jurors obviously see that and. You know, judges was like, look, don't pay any attention to that. Don't go home and watch the media. Yeah, don't be a human. Right. And and honestly, I really I feel like they really didn't look at stuff like right. Like didn't they didn't. Oh, I think they they adhere to the law, which yeah. is don't go do independent research. Don't watch the news. I'm talking about when I say don't be human in jest, I'm talking about don't let the fact that this case clearly has media attention weigh on you. You know, we all have pressures in our life. We tried to cover this in jury selection. Remember, right. like, look, it's easy to tell a judge who's up there on the bench wearing a robe follow the law and do what the facts and the law require of you. But that's why we ask, like, look, when you go home, if you find these, that the evidence supported liability for McDonald's, is that something you're going to be comfortable with knowing that the media might be covering it? Your spouse, significant other, best friends, coworkers might right. pressure you. Right. Hey, why did you do that? It takes a special type of resolve to do what the facts and law require of you, knowing all of the pressure you're going to have later. And I think what we saw in this case, ultimately, not just because the verdict itself, but how the verdict was reached, it took hours, what a little over four hours, yeah. spread over two days. Mm -hmm. They asked to see additional evidence. This shows you, like what little you can glean into a jury room without being there. This shows you that there was healthy debate, that people were being uh, reasonable. People were using deductive reasoning to say what's most likely, what is the greater weight. Um, and that's why I feel confident that the ver like I feel comfortable with the verdict. It's great to win. It's great to win for our clients. I, I believed for years that that we would win and. So I'm not surprised by the verdict, but I'm grateful for how they reached it because mm -hmm. it wasn't done in haste. It was clearly the process of deliberative thought, measured reasoning, and ultimately just deciding the case based on these facts and this law and not the court of public opinion. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think that all of that speaks volumes to the process. Everyone's like, oh, this is what makes the civil justice system terrible. And I was like, you know what, this is what makes the civil justice system great. You know, that you can feel that your child has been wronged. And then a member of our members of our community will decide whether that's that's right or wrong. 
you know, who's right, who's wrong, you know, and, and the jurors did that here. They also, you know, they found that there was no defect in the design of chicken nuggets, and that was obviously a design defect in terms of the, the operations of how it was produced. They also right. found that there was no breach of the implied warranties of merchantability and the implied warranty of, of fitness for a particular purpose, meaning, like, you know, that essentially that the nuggets that, you know, I don't know exactly how they interpreted it, but, you know, so they, they said no to those. So it, it isn't like the jury went back there and then in 30 minutes came back and checked yes for everything. There were seven different questions on the verdict form. There were right. th- three yeses and four noes. Now, from a legal standpoint, it doesn't matter because one yes for either defendant is a, they're liable for the damages. But in terms of people's recognition of, well, did the jury just run out and, you know, I've seen things like, oh, the jury's in on it. And, and, you know, like that's that that's make believe like, you know, like all of that, you know, and all these people are, you know, keyboard warriors and talking about like they have any idea what happened in the trial. And they don't. And, you know, and, and so I, think, I don't blame them, though, man. It's a lightning rod. Yeah. I went into this with my eyes open. I think you did, too. I did. Years ago, I could have forecasted not the extent of the coverage. I, I won't pretend that. But, you know, this comes, what, 29 years, almost 30 years after the. uh rightly or wrongly, infamous hot coffee, Leibowitz case. It makes sense why people would find this to be something compelling to talk about, have strong opinions about. And, you know, for the few people that were in the courtroom throughout, they know the true facts. For everybody else, they're relying on reporting and reporters do their best to get it right. But, you know, many of them weren't there either. It's all secondhand, now thirdhand and all of that. It's like a bad game of telephone, but I don't fault anyone for having strong feelings about it. But um, I think if you were to dig into this, this was a this was a public record here. You know, there's a court reporter there taking down every word. Somebody could go out and buy that transcript and read it cover to cover. And I think they'd have a much better, a deeper appreciation for the realities that justice was done here. Um, One of the defenses, you know, just talking again about temperature really quick, was basically we have to cook them this hot, right? We got to get them up to 165, then we got to hold them above 140, blah, blah, blah. Well, starting in voir dire all the way through closing argument, we tried to rebut that. And I think ultimately we did successfully, which is to say, if this were a car accident case where our theory of liability was the defendant was driving too fast, they're speeding, they're going 120. Could you get up there straight face and tell the jury, yeah, but we got to drive at least 40 on our highways, right? It doesn't make sense. There's a disconnect with logic. Right. Nobody's accusing you of driving too slow here. If she had eaten the nuggets and gotten sick, maybe that would be that case. This isn't that case. Uh, it's about it being too hot, even when there's reasonable minimums. And, and I think the jury saw through that. And two more points just on, on the jury and the, and the process itself, because people, not everyone lives in Florida, and even those who do, they don't really have, you know, understandably, they don't know how the court system works all the way through. But in Florida, jury verdicts are required to be unanimous, which means 100% of the jurors who hear the case have to decide it and agree. Mm-hmm. You can't split the baby here, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So- I think what you have is a jury verdict that comes ultimately from six people, six perfect strangers to one another, who all sat in the same courtroom for one week, heard the same things, saw the same things, but probably internalized it and interpreted it differently. But over two days, four plus hours of deliberating and talking to one another, they, they got on the same page mm-hmm. about what the evidence showed and what the law required. And so the fact that the jury verdict is unanimous, I think, is an additional strength. The other point I want to bring up about this trial is the fact that it was bifurcated, which is just a fancy way of saying it was split. Mm-hmm. So every case, there's two main questions. Is anyone at fault? And then if so, how much is that worth in damages? Here, the case was split. So the first trial, the one that's all been reported on, ultimately, all that was decided was, did McDonald's do anything wrong? Did its franchisee, Upchurch Foods Incorporated, who operates 40 of these McDonald's across Florida, did they do anything wrong? The answer to both of those questions is now yes, definitively. 
So put that aside. So now when we come back later this summer for phase two, the only question will be, what is the amount of money that justice requires to be given to Olivia to compensate her for what she's been through and what she unquestionably will go through in the future? And because this is still an ongoing legal, legal proceedings, I'm just going to leave that right there and just talk conceptually. Um, but the point is, I, I do see some of the coverage, some of the commentary talking about money, this money, that the first part of this case had nothing to do with money. Um, I mean, right. the jury was told the lawsuit had to deal with money, obviously, that if if phase one went in our favor, there would be a subsequent proceeding. I mean, they didn't go in with a blindfold on. But at the end of the day here, all the jury heard about was lock, stock and barrel, how McNuggets are made, manufactured, designed, Happy Meals, you name it. And in and of itself, is there anything wrong with what happened here? And the answer was yes. And I'm I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for the opportunity to go into phase two. Frankly, I, I can't wait. Yeah, I, th I think that. You know, it was a good trial. It's a good result. You know, and you know, later this summer, we're going to ultimately to see what the next jury is going to decide. You know, the fate for um, the minor and, and what she deserves for what happened to her. You know, and she's got a scarring that is going to be there for the rest of her life. And you know, it, what a jury feels that that's worth. And so, you know, yeah. so likely. I just want to say, I want to thank first and foremost. I want to thank this family for giving our law firm the opportunity to, to place their trust and faith in us. To get this to get this done, this was not an easy case. Before, long before the media even knew it existed, this wasn't an easy case. It was an uphill battle against a global titan of industry, and uh, that family could have chosen any law firm, and they chose us, and they chose us specifically. And I, I'm super grateful for that opportunity and um, to be able to deliver for them. And um, frankly, when I became a lawyer, all I wanted to do was help people. And then when I started focusing particularly on injury cases, all I wanted to do was help people who genuinely were in need. This family, this little girl, they were in need of justice. And the fact that we were able to deliver it for them mm -hmm. is, is something that I'll hold with me and cherish for the rest of my life. So um, I think that's it for now. You know, in the event there is a phase two, uh, we'll certainly circle back on that. But for now, I just wanted to take this opportunity with John and, and to thank you. Look, you tried this case with me. You came in and there's no way this verdict gets done without you, too. So um, if you found this interesting, drop us a like, subscribe. If you if if you watch this whole thing and we haven't changed your mind about anything and you still hate us and think we're the dregs of society and out there chasing ambulances, although it's wrong, thumbs down it. I don't care what it is, but if you have a reaction, feel free to leave it. And um, we're out here doing what we can to get justice for the people of Florida, Georgia, and the U.S. Virgin Islands, and we're proud to do it every day. Absolutely. So. One, two, three, four. There's nothing more thrilling than nailing an insurance company. At the truth. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Great moments are born from great opportunities.